If you were to ask me who in my whole school life was my favorite teacher, I wouldn't hesitate in telling you it was Mrs. Tweddle. She was my year four teacher. And among other subjects she taught, uh, she taught art, and I loved that she had one of my own paintings hanging in her loo at home. And uh, I loved her, and I knew that she loved me. If there was anything close to being a teacher's pet, I felt I was it. Uh, she was just absolutely wonderful. And when I was eight, we were learning about money. This is before the decimal system. This is old coins, 12 shillings to a pound and all those things. And uh, actually, how many shillings were there in a pound? Was it 20? 20 shillings. There are 12 pennies in a shilling. And then, yeah, you see, I'm getting old now. But anyway, this is back in the day, like before the day. <laughs> and Mrs. Tweddle personally brought in enough coins for the whole class to be able to count. And faced with the temptation of so much money on the table, I'm ashamed to say that I stole nine old pennies, hoping that she wouldn't miss them. And on my way home, a couple of miles walk, I stopped at a shop and I bought, I spent it all on a huge bag of sweets. And my mother caught me, just as I came in the back gate, intending to hide them, to go out in the garden later and consume them, the back door opened and there stood my mother. What's that? And of course, I didn't really have as much as nine pennies to my name, and so she discovered what has gone on, what had gone on, and my mother coached me on what I needed to do. She loaned me nine pennies from my future weeks of pocket money, and she said, you need to take them back and uh, confess what you've done. And so the next day, I turned up, clutching these nine hot coins in both meanings of the word. And uh, I gave them to her. And in my tearful, choked-up voice, I said, I stole these yesterday, and I'm really sorry. And she took the coins, and she didn't tell me off. She didn't interrogate me. She just smiled. She put her arms around me. She engulfed me in a huge hug and thanked me for returning them. And I can still remember, it's almost 50 years now, the warm feeling of reconciliation, of that huge wall that I had built through my actions just tumbling down as she forgave me. And I learned something profound that day. Asking for forgiveness when we wrong someone else and freely forgiving someone who has wronged us are both so important in restoring relationships. Over the previous two Sundays, we've been exploring the subject of relationships as part of this Making Room for More series. And in these two talks, Dave and Susie shared with us how we are designed for relationship and how developing and maintaining healthy relationships are important because we are made in the image of a relational God. If you missed either of those and you have access to the internet, I'd encourage you to listen to them. As important and precious Relationships of all different kinds are, they're not always easy, are they? There's a Ghanaian proverb that sums this up perfectly. It says, the branches of a tree that are closest will inevitably rub together. And whether deliberately or accidentally, we have all been wronged in relationships, and incidentally, we have all wronged others one way or another. And although this is a normal part of life, the Bible encourages us to love each other as best we can and work these things out. 
As we heard last week, one of the characteristics of love described in the passage that Susie was unpacking for us is that love is not easily angered and it does not keep a record of wrongs. In relationships, people do things, don't they, which make us angry. You and I do things that make other people angry, usually without meaning to do what we've done, we wrong others. We just forget to include them in communication of something they jolly well should have been included in. Or we may thoughtlessly say something, we may even thought it was amusing, but it comes over in some ways harsh or hurtful. In so many ways, so many various ways, you and I do and say things which wrong others. And relationships work so much better when both parties are willing to resolve those issues and let them go. Someone said that a great marriage is the union of two good forgivers. And it's just as true in other relationships. A really good relationship involves two good forgivers. I'm inspired by stories and hearing people uh, who have forgiven, especially when they've forgiven things which are way beyond anything that I could even imagine suffering. And you see people making decisions. It's just so inspiring to see that. Some of you may, like I was on Thursday morning, you may have been watching the BBC news, and the presenters were interviewing a couple whose 22-year-old son, Martin Het, had been killed in the Manchester Arena bombing just over a month ago. And I was amazed at what his mother, Fegan Murray, said. And her attitude, and I know you, deliberately avoided knowing the name yeah, of the man who committed absolutely. this Absolutely. I'm not really interested in, in knowing his name. I think there's an S and an A somewhere in his name, but that's all I care about. Um, having said that, I don't hate the guy. I absolutely feel, um, um, you know, when I watch these things unfold at the mosque in London this earlier this week, I... I what I read about it, and I thought, well, gosh, there's some people who the people should have, you know, could have easily lynched the guy, and some people started started kicking him and hitting him, and then suddenly, out of nowhere, these people came, these Somalian people, I think, and surrounded him and to protect, protect him. him, and I thought, wow, that's humanity, humanity in action, literally, because I think. Um, they could have easily also joined in, but they chose not to. And I am actually, it made me really, really think about what happened to Martin. And I actually, uh, although I don't know his name, and I don't want to know his name, I actually have forgiven this guy. And um, I don't feel any negative feelings about it. I know that may sound a bit controversial, but it's, it's genuinely how I feel. I don't know if it's controversial. I think it would be probably su- surprising. For many okay. people, and it, and and as I said earlier, everyone deals with grief in their own way, and we and we to what happened in their own way. Amazing, amazing, and amazingly challenging. Stories of people forgiving encourage us and warm our hearts when they're not about us. You know, we all love stories of forgiveness, but we all know, don't we, that forgiveness, uh, forgiving others. Uh, You know, it's something that good Christians are supposed to do, but it is not always easy. So this evening, we are going to look at what the Bible has to say about forgiveness, why we forgive, what forgiveness is, and how 
we can go about forgiving others. The challenge, you know, of simply getting along with each other is as hard now as it ever has been, but it was, you know, as real in biblical times as it is today. The very fact that many of the letters of the New Testament were written uh, specifically, you know, to help churches resolve disputes because people even within the body of faith, the, the family of God, fell out with each other, all sorts of problems were going on and so on. And so uh, the Bible is always relevant in addressing our situation today. When Jesus was asked by his disciples, tell us about forgiveness and how many times we should forgive, his answer to them was given in the form of a parable. A parable is simply a story. Jesus, this is one of his major teaching methods. When he was asked about a truth, instead of just giving some sort of straight answer, he would tell a story that made people think, wow, and the truth has a lot of depth to it as we unpack the story. So he responded by telling them a story, which is recorded in Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 23. Therefore, said Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. It's hard to grasp, but if you just read that again, 10,000 bags of gold, the size of debt. You know, in today's money, we're talking probably tens of millions of pounds. The servant owes his master. It's not clear in the story, of course, how he's got him to so much trouble, but he's in a very, very deep hole, and there's really no way out. And it was not uncommon in those days for servants and indeed their families to be sold into slavery to at least pay off part of that. But, you know, there's no real possibility that they could pay it off, even in a lifetime of free labor. So given the amount this guy owed, his plea for patience, his promise to pay back everything is just so unrealistic. It's just simply the words of a desperate man. But this part of the parable is not just about the servant, it's about the reaction of the king. And when this king hears the servant's pleas, he feels his heart going out to him. He took pity on him and he canceled the entire debt and let him go. That servant was undeserving, but the king acted with mercy and wiped his slate clean. And in this parable, Jesus was teaching his disciples and us about our significant debt that God has wiped clean for us. Just as the king in the story had compassion on this servant, God has compassion for us, and he has forgiven us for everything that we've done. Everything we have done, everything we are doing, everything we will do has been completely forgiven. A debt that we couldn't possibly pay having a relationship with a perfect God. We could not possibly pay it. It was paid by Jesus on the cross. And so the Bible tells us in 1 John 1.19 that if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our starting point when it comes to forgiveness is that we are a forgiven people. Just as the king in the parable wiped the servant's extraordinary debt clean, so too does our king absolve us from all of our debts. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. He goes on in uh, verse 28. 
But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and they went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive a brother or sister from your heart. In the second half of the parable, Jesus contrasts how the first servant was treated with how he then went on to treat his colleague. The second servant's debt was significant. Uh, you know, 100 silver coins, roughly equated to 100 days' wages. In today's terms, that would be on an average wage maybe as much as 10,000 pounds. So pretty substantial. And the first servant was clearly entitled to what was owed him, but the amount the second servant owed was absolutely insignificant compared with the debt the first servant had just been forgiven. A hundred thousand bag of, bags of gold versus a hundred silver coins. God has forgiven everything we have ever done and everything we will ever do. That is massive. And it just anything that we are asked to forgive is in pales into tiny, tiny significance compared to the debt that we have had wiped clean with God. The message Jesus is sharing is very clear here. God's forgiveness isn't meant to stop with us. We are not only meant to be a forgiven people, but a forgiving people. Unlike the servant in this parable, our response to God forgiving us is to extend forgiveness when we are wronged and hurt. And just as our relationship with God is characterized by the forgiveness that he so graciously offers us, our relationships with one another should be characterized in the same way. And we see this dynamic in various places in the Bible, the relationship between being forgiven and forgiving. For instance, Jesus taught his followers to pray. And in the Lord's Prayer, he includes the phrase, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Jesus is indicating that he required his followers to not just receive forgiveness for what they had done wrong, but to pass forgiveness on in their relationships. And he said in Mark 11:25, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. The relationship between our being forgiven and our willingness to forgive. There seems to be something profound being talked about here, and I'm not clear exactly how that works, but we shouldn't ignore it. We shouldn't just go on you know, holding grudges and wanting revenge and just saying, oh, thanks for your forgiveness, Lord. There is a relationship that we would do well to pay attention to. Last week, Susie referred to 1 John 4.19, which says, we love because he first loved us. And chapter 13, 34, where Jesus commanded his disciples, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And in both these passages, we could swap the word forgiveness in, in the place of love. We forgive because he first forgave us. Forgive one another as I have forgiven you, so you must forgive one another. 
So why do we forgive? Well, firstly, in response to the forgiveness that God has uh, extended to us. Secondly, we forgive because it releases us from the power of resentment, bitterness, anger, something which is actually has a hold of us. It, it breaks the power of that. Unforgiveness, you know, doesn't so much hurt the person that we are refusing to forgive. I don't know whether you've ever th thought about that. I'm not going to forgive you. I'm going to hold it against you. They're just going off doing the shopping. They're not that bothered. You're the one who's all messed up by your refusal. It actually hurts us so much more than it hurts them. And when we hold on to unforgiveness, we continue to hold on to past hurts and wrongs. What might have been perhaps a one-off single act, hurtful act against us, can actually become a cycle of pain and anger that feeds itself. Now, forgiveness on its own won't make the hurt go away. It's not a quick fix to healing, but it is the first step in the process. It creates a healthy foundation which we can work from, or as the American broadcaster Bernard Melzer put it, when you forgive, you in no way change the past, but you sure do change the future. There may be some of us here today who feel that we've experienced something which is unforgivable life-shattering events like abuse and violence and oppression, things that have shaped us, experiences that have changed the course of our life forever. And it's not only things that have happened to us personally, but as we watch the news, it feels like unforgivable acts are happening around us all the time. If we just take the last, what, 32 days or so, there are three recent terror attacks in London, on Westminster Bridge, on London Bridge, outside the Finsbury Mosque, the bombing of that concert in Manchester, they are so horrendous that they don't deserve to be forgiven. I'll qualify that in a minute, but they do not deserve to be forgiven. Following another tragic event in recent days, that terrible fire which killed so many in the Grenfell Tower Block, Newspapers, different ones, were publishing who to blame. Someone's got to be blamed somewhere and blame this and this and this. Uh, one of them quoted Kensington MP Emma Dent Code, accusing the council of failures, claiming that poor quality materials and construction standards have played a part in this hideous and unforgivable event. None of these events feels easy to forgive. And in some circumstances, the very act of forgiveness feels like the wrong thing to do. Now, it is fair to say that these things, terror attacks and so on, are inexcusable. They are wrong. But does that make them unforgivable? Some of you will have read Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace? And in his book, Yancey describes the biblical message of forgiveness as scandalous and unnatural. And what Yancey recognizes is that when we have been genuinely hurt, it is not easy to forgive. And when we think of the great pain that we have suffered as individuals or as a community or as a nation, forgiving an atrocious act feels like a scandal. It feels unfair. It's just unjust. Why would you do that? But it's important to understand what we really mean by forgiveness because forgiveness and justice are not the same thing. Forgiveness is not a pardon. Forgiving someone does not mean absolving them from the legal or natural or spiritual consequences of what they've done. 
In fact, in some circumstances, just to kind of just flippantly say, oh, I forgive you, doesn't do justice to what you're actually letting go of. And it can be a disservice in a relationship. Sometimes you need to go there and actually talk it through and bottom it out before you fully realize it and then release it. Forgiving is not about what happens to a person as a result of something they've done. Forgiveness is about how we feel about them in our hearts. It means releasing the anger that we feel. It means relinquishing the need to take revenge on them or to see harm come to them, which is different from a natural desire to see the fair consequences in place or justice being served. The most commonly used word in the New Testament, which is translated forgive or forgiveness, literally translates as to release. Forgiveness is about release, releasing the other person from our desire for revenge, and at the same time, releasing ourselves from the power that that hurt or wrong has over us. This is how Scarlett Lewis described her experience of forgiveness. Scarlett Lewis's son, Jesse, was killed in 2012 in the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. It was the biggest school shooting in US history. She described her anger as sapping all her strength and energy until she made a choice to forgive the shooter. And she said that forgiveness felt like I was given a big pair of scissors to cut the tie and regain my personal power. It started with a choice and then became, became a process. The power of forgiveness has been widely recognized inside the church, outside the church. It's clearly right through the pages of the scriptures, but also people, it, it fits with common sense uh, and research as well. For example, Janelle Brice Biagioni is a counselor with particular expertise in grief and trauma and has written a number of books uh, drawing on both her professional expertise and also her own personal, quite awful personal experiences of suffering. She's not apparently a Christian. She doesn't find her understanding of forgiveness in the Bible, but her views on forgiveness make very, very good sense. Let me just read you an excerpt I picked up from her website this week. She said, there is nothing more damaging to our soul than an anger and bitterness that is carried with a vengeance for years. That isn't to say people don't have the right to be angry about what has happened to them, they do. The important thing is for a person to find a way that is both appropriate and safe to express their anger. Anger is a normal grief experience. Carrying it into the future for years and years is not. Often, what goes hand in hand with anger is forgiveness. This trips people up. They don't want to forgive someone for what they did because it feels as though it's giving them a free pass for what they did. If you choose to not forgive, she writes, and yes, it is a choice, it is you who ultimately pays the price. To hold on to the anger and resentment secures your path in a deep sludge that I guarantee will spill over into your relationships and future experiences. On the other hand, if you choose to forgive, the benefit to yourself, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, is immeasurable. Unforgiveness damages us more than the person we're holding unforgiveness towards. It's not just an altruistic act. It actually 
benefits us. A point evidently understood profoundly by Barry and Margaret Mitson, the day after his 16th birthday, their son Jimmy was murdered. And Barry and Margaret Mitson hit national headlines when immediately after the attack, they spoke of compassion rather than revenge. And they both described how forgiveness is the only response they can, they can offer to make sense of what happened to their son. And Margaret said, for me, forgiveness is about not wanting revenge and not being angry. I'm not shouting from the rooftop, I forgive, but by not wanting revenge, I have an inner peace that a lot of people in our position don't seem to have. Jimmy's murder has done a lot of damage to this family, and I can't let it do any more. You see families who suffer major trauma, like losing a child, and sometimes in like a school shooting, multiple children, and it's very notable the lives that are crushed and long-term destroyed by that versus lives that move on into a much lighter place, and it is all traced back to a decision, the decision to forgive. Holding on to unforgiveness, refusing to let it go, uh, robs us of peace. As the writer of Proverbs indicates, if a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones, I don't think it's stretching the thrust very far to suggest that swapping in the word unforgiveness in place of the word envy makes good sense. Unforgiveness rots our bones. Now, whether that's literal in some way in damaging our physical health, and medics suggest that it may be in some situations, it certainly paints a picture of a body suffering because of a destructive emotion or attitude. When we forgive another person, we find peace and a future which is so much better for us than we, if we had elected to hold on to unforgiveness. So scandalous and unnatural it may feel, but the Bible is clear that forgiveness is at the heart of Jesus' message. It's at the heart of how God treats us, and it's at the heart of how he encourages us to treat each other. So how do we forgive? Bill Hybels, who leads a church in the States, suggests a number of points with the word go in them. You may be able to try and remember them by the time we get to the end, to help us think about how we can forgive. And I've adapted these points slightly for us tonight. First, we should go. The Bible is clear that we all need, from time to time, to forgive one another. Paul wrote to the Colossian church in chapter 3.13, encourages us to bear with one another and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Take the first step in forgiving someone. It may be also that we may need to take the first step in actually asking forgiveness of them. That can be vital in restoring of relationships. Adrian Vlock was South Africa's last justice minister under apartheid, and at one time Vlock was one of the most feared people in the country. And he was a supporter of apartheid, and in his role as justice minister, he was pivotal in the unjustified arrest and detention of many anti-apartheid protesters. And in a recent interview, Vlock described how following the dissolution of apartheid and in the midst of significant reconciliation and healing going on in his country, someone sent him a letter encouraging him to read the verses in the Bible that talk about unforgiveness. Talk about forgiveness, actually. 
And he said, I needed to make peace with my brothers and sisters that I have hurt and dedicated the rest of his life to doing this. So he was the highest ranking official to testify in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in 2006. He publicly apologized for his role in the regime. And Vlock spent many years traveling around South Africa asking for forgiveness personally from those he had wronged during his time as justice minister. And when he meets people to ask for forgiveness, he washes their feet as an act of repentance. What a powerful image. A man seeped in an oppressive regime for years and years who carried out terrible acts of injustice, getting down on his knees, humbling himself in front of those that he has hurt and washing their feet. Forgiveness is a, a radical and powerful thing. If there is a relational rift, no matter who caused it, whether you're at fault or you feel they're at fault and you need to forgive them, take the initiative and first of all, go. Go to them. Secondly, we should go privately. In Matthew 18, chapter we're in at the moment, Jesus says this, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. Another translation says, just between the two of you, go privately. Now, sometimes it is helpful to seek discreet advice about a conflict and, you know, how am I going to go about resolving this? Give me a perspective. Can you help me understand what would be the best way, do you think, that I could approach trying to reconcile this relationship? Sometimes wisdom is helpful rather than just reacting and, you know, maybe you're clouded with anger and you're a bit confusing. But... Um, so you may need to talk about the situation, but be very careful who you talk about it to with. And uh, you know, sometimes it may feel good to complain about what another person has done to you. And at times it feels justified to have someone else vindicate your feelings, but it, it drags others into the conflict. So as much as possible, even if you have to take counsel from a trusted friend, go directly to the person to resolve that difficulty. As Susie said last Sunday, talk to them rather than talking about them. Very important because the natural tendency and right across our society would be talk to anyone but the person. You know, just talk about them, talk about them. What that does is spread the infection sideways, doesn't just lance the infection and deal with it uh, in the most appropriate way. So we need to be very careful about that. So go, go privately and go now, which just talks about the get on with it. Don't let it drag out for weeks, months, or years. In Matthew 5, 23, it says this, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to that person, then come and offer your gift. It's speaking into the Judaic temple system at the time, coming and offering a gift at the altar. It's like coming to church to worship. And Jesus is saying, if when you realize, oh, there's this thing, I need to forgive someone or I need to ask for forgiveness, he says, it's more important than doing all the religious duties of worship. You might just want to leave and go and sort it. Or you might, in the context of tonight, you know, whatever, you just think, I've got to resolve that. I'll just text them and say, could we meet up this week? Or maybe when the sermon's finished, I'm just going to go and call them. Or I'm going to go and visit them or whatever. Go and go now. As soon as we can, let's not delay and just drag it out uh, if we need to apologize or if we need to seek reconciliation. It reduces the potential for festering and things building up. Fourthly, go 
to restore the relationship. You know, when we go to talk to someone who's wronged us, we don't go to satisfy our own need to express our anger or to make them feel really, really bad about what they've done and just want to nail them on it. We are to go humbly and gently with one aim, that is reconciliation, resolving the dispute. And these things can take time. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples at the beginning of this passage, the preceding couple of verses, asked Jesus, how many times do, should we forgive someone? And he suggested, what about seven times? And Jesus says, no, no, try 70 times seven. Now, that's just playing with a couple of biblical numbers with great significance of completeness. He's basically saying, he's not actually saying 490 times, you know, count them off, tick it off, and then on the 500th, you know, 491th, you can, you know, whack them or something. It's, uh, he's not being literal, he's basically saying, don't keep count, just keep on forgiving. The teaching at the time was that you only needed to forgive someone three times for the same offense. Peter thought he was being really generous. I'm more than doubling it. What about seven? And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. Just up the generosity. He's saying, just keep on. Just as your heavenly Father forgives you for everything, on and on and on, keep on forgiving endlessly. And sometimes forgiveness is a process that we have to go through day by day. You know, some of you have been wronged in ways when you wake up in the morning, it's almost your first thought, the pain that you feel about what someone did. And you have to, even before you get out of bed, I'd encourage you to forgive them again. And don't keep count. It'll be more than 490 days you probably do that, but just forgive again. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't, get, don't allow it to come back and hold you and crush you. Let it go. And that's the last point. There are times when we need to let it go. We've all been in situations where we've done everything right. We've gone to forgive. We, or, or we've gone to ask for forgiveness. We've gone privately, we've gone as soon after the event happened as possible with a view to restoring the relationship, but the other person doesn't share our view. They either rebuff our apology or they reject our reaching out with forgiveness or they refuse to forgive us. There's all those dynamics. Reconciliation is just not possible. Well, what can we do when that happens? In the letter to the Roman church, Paul writes this, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it is possible, that's the first thing, and it may not be possible. As far as it depends on you, live at peace. We cannot control other people's responses. But if forgiveness is about how we feel about others in our own hearts, no one can take away our power to do that. It is possible to do what we can before God, and to let it go. Now these five goes are really, I think, helpful practical tools just to think as a, like a checklist in our mind when we're in a conflict. Go, take the initiative, try and sort it out. And go privately, rather than talking about them, go to them. Go now means go you know, as soon as is reasonably possible once you process maybe a bit of emotion. And go with that aim in mind to restore the relationship and then let it go if you've been wrong. Just walk away from it, forgive it, let it go. And indeed, you may need to walk away from the relationship if it's not uh, gonna be reconciled from their point of view. So if it's possible and as far as it depends on you. Now I realize in just over half an hour, I've only been able to touch the surface of this subject and some of you may 
right now be in specific situations where you're deeply troubled about a past experience or an ongoing relationship where you need wisdom in order to move forward, situations where someone's being wronged by another repeatedly sometimes do need a line drawn under them and it may be right to actually walk away from a toxic relationship. But I hope that whatever your situation, there has been something within what I've said tonight which will help you appreciate God's forgiveness for you personally, how awesome that is, and enable you to release forgiveness to others and enjoy a fresh freedom in your relationships.